Let's pray together as we uh, go to the Word. Father, we've just sung about the power of the cross, about how Christ took the blame that was on us for our sin and how through Him we have life. Thank you for um, gifted artisans and writers that, like Ben said, Lord, take the Word of your scriptures and put them to notes and it's um it's easier for us to sing them it's easier for us to even remember them sometimes lord as we do that um but father i pray you'd take us now into your word uh, into the word itself lord that we can see uh, your character behind these words we sing that we can understand um the meaning lord of this wooden cross that hangs on the wall behind me here, God, that we can see it for what it is, and Lord, that lives will be changed because of that. Um, So I ask that in Christ's name, amen. So there is in in a stone archway, if you just see the picture that's up on the screen, there is in the stone archway there what's called the keystone, and the keystone is that wedge-shaped stone right at the very top that locks all those other pieces into place. It holds everything together. Another definition of it is that it, it supports everything that depends upon that center, if you will. And so we're going to take a couple of weeks to talk about some keystone biblical truths that are at the very center of the gospel. And John and I were laughing a little bit before the the service started here because he was, Jason, he was talking about your questions. And I I think the thing that um, was going to be a challenge was maybe not understanding this term penal substitution. It's not a term that we throw out there a lot, okay? But we just sang it. On the cross, Jesus took our punishment. On the cross... He stood in our place. So just to get the definition out of the way so you can then focus on these different biblical passages and maybe help us just be sure we're all on the same here. The the word penal just comes from like the penal system, a penal colony, uh, a penitentiary, if you will. It has to do with the word punishment. It's a legal term. So it carries the idea behind it that law is being upheld in the administration of a punishment that's deserved for some crime that's been committed. That's what the word penal means. And substitute, we understand, right? Someone is standing in the place of another. There's a substitute there. So that's, that's the idea behind this penal substitution. And so for the next two weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday, we're going to think about these keystone ideas, these keystone doctrines, if you will. And the two that we're going to think about are substitution, penal substitution, and redemption. And those are songs that we've sung this morning. We've talked about both of those terms. And we throw them out sometimes as as believers. We throw them out in our church, in our worship. And, And there may be, and I fully expect that there's some here would have no idea what penal substitution would mean. And, and that's okay. Or what the word redemption would mean. It's not a word that we use a lot. And that's okay. And it's good for you to be in a place this morning where you can hear what those words mean. And it's good for us as Christians who sing about them and sometimes throw them around. 
but don't really grasp the significance of them. Because I would submit to you that without understanding what substitution really means and what it really means that Christ redeemed us or paid the price for us, if you don't understand those terms, you do not understand the gospel. You cannot understand the gospel because therein lies the good news. That's what the, the word means. And so we're going to do this in a kind of a different way. I'm, I'm going to, after we get finished with Ephesians, Lord willing, I'm going to, I'm going to lead us through a series on the life of David. I've always wanted to do that. And so we're going to look at King David. We're going to look at the life of King David. And so in preparation for that and just in my personal quiet time, I've been spending time in the Psalms. And I've been just considering what David wrote, the songs he wrote, the poems he wrote, and the reflections that come in those as David thinks about his own faith, his own relationship with God. And as we think about David, then what we will do as we look at his life is we're going to see the parallel between David and the New Testament. And Alex Moyer says that without the Old Testament, we cannot know Jesus properly. I'm going to say that again, church, because you need to recognize this. If you do not understand what the Old Testament is teaching, you cannot understand who Jesus is. And that's especially true when we talk about something that is as controversial. And, and you might not think the idea of penal substitution is controversial, but oh my word, it is. So we're going to think about that. Tim Keller shares the coolest story about himself when he was a young man. He does it in the foreword of a book that I have. But when he was a 23-year-old seminary student, he was invited with some other guys to go to R.C. Sproul's house in rural Pennsylvania and be there with this Old Testament scholar named Alec Moyer. And so they were there in Sproul's living room, and Moyer was there to talk about the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And here's what Tim Keller writes. He says, Moyer said this, think about it. Think about what an Israelite would say on the way to the promised land, having come out of the Red Sea and so forth. And if you were to say to them, who are you? What would the Israelite say? So here's what Moyer said. That Israelite would say, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death, in bondage. But I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Our mediator let us out, and we crossed over, and now we're on our way to the promised land, but we're not there yet. But he's given us a law to make us a community, and he's given us the tabernacle because you have to live by grace and forgiveness, and his presence is in our midst, and he is going to stay with us until we get home. And Moyer said, that's exactly what the Christian says. And Tim Keller went, huh. That's why we need to understand what would have been David's understanding of his substitute. What would have been his understanding of needing a redeemer? Okay, so that's kind of the direction we'll go with that. Scripture makes this clear. We've sung about it this morning. Our God is perfectly holy, perfectly just. He is morally perfect. He is our creator and we are his creation. And as that... 
Because he is our creator, he can and has established requirements for us, the the parameters by which we relate to him and to each other. And it's really pretty simple. Jesus said so. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. All of the law and prophets, Jesus says, is summarized in those two things. Love God and love your neighbor. And because he is our God and our creator, he can say that. But here's the problem. We don't love God the way we should, right? I I don't love God the way I should. And I certainly don't love you the way I should. I don't love my neighbor as I should. Because I prefer other things over what God would want for me. And I love other things sometimes more than I would love him. And we go, well, that's just as Jason so, so pointed out so well a couple of weeks. Well, you know, that's just, that's just because we're people. No, that's not because we're human beings. Jesus is the model of our humanity. We do that because we're sinful and we've rebelled against our creator. And that's a big deal. It is a huge deal. It's an eternity shaping deal in how you love God and how you love your neighbor. Because to fall short of those model, that model that God has given us and thus fall short of his moral perfection, well, then on one hand we would say, well, given who God is and all of his moral perfections, Gerald, you know, I know that God is love and I'm just trusting in his love. That's the reason, that argument right there is the reason we have a struggle with penal substitution. I'll touch on that in just a second. But given the fact that God is morally perfect, and given the fact that he sets and upholds a standard of holy justice and righteousness, and given the fact that he is just and righteous in every way, he cannot simply sweep those things under the rug. Do you get that? Do you understand that? Even in our judicial system, a judge that just dismisses things offhand is rejected. And so we can't do that. And so for God, how is God then going to uphold the fact that he is just and righteous and that it is also good? How can he not overlook sin and accept us and bring us to himself? So penal substitution may not be a phrase that we immediately recognize, but it is something that we preach and we teach and we sing And we're going to see that Abraham understood that, and Moses understood that, and the Israelites who came out through the Exodus understood that. David understood it. Isaiah understood it, as Jason read this morning. And all of that looks to Jesus. This morning we have sung 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So we understand that concept. But let's go deeper into that and understand what it means when we say that Jesus was willing to be our substitute, willing to take the wrath of God upon himself and thereby free us from the penalty of sin and free us to love God and others the way we should. Let's think about what that means. One writer said, if God were just, excuse me, if God were not just, there'd be no demand for his son to suffer and die. And if God were not loving, there would be no willingness for his son to suffer and die. But God is just and loving. One other writer said, It is only in viewing Christ as our penal substitute that we will truly understand the depth of God's holy love for us. 
It's only in viewing Christ as our penal substitute we'll understand the horrendous nature of our sin before God and the glory of our substitute. So that's, that's what it boils down to. We can't worship him and love him unless we really understand what this is saying. Now, I mentioned a minute ago this is a doctrine under attack. Why would that be? Well, just think about it for just a second. And I think it can be summarized in two things. We dismiss this idea of God's holy, just wrath and of the fact that he is righteous in every way and must uphold that righteousness. When we kind of just diss that off, it means that two things are going on. One, we have a small view of God and we have a very large view of ourselves. When we make less of God than we should and more of ourselves than we should, then we begin to dismiss some of these biblical truths that seem to be difficult to reconcile in our fallen, limited minds. So the idea of penal substitution is under attack, and it is being dismissed, and it has been for a long time. But it's taken on over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, a kind of a different direction. There's a couple of, uh, couple of preachers, pastors from uh, England who, who wrote a uh, a book called The Lost Message of Jesus. This was, I think, back in 2000. Um, and in that view, they basically put forward the view that the cross is, if we look at the cross through the eyes of penal substitution, we see it as what they call divine child abuse. Divine child abuse. They say the, form, the cross is a form of cosmic child abuse, where a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. And they say if the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies. The idea that God was an angry deity requiring a sacrifice to propitiate his wrath was surely more like an ancient pagan God than the father of Jesus Christ. So there you immediately begin. We take a low view of God's holiness and a very high view of human compassion and love. And say that those two things cannot be combined in this way. But to do that is to attack, and here's what I want us to see for just a minute. To attack this idea that Jesus is our legal penal substitute is to attack the whole message of the Bible. The whole scriptural message upholds this. And so let's think about that for just a second. And to do that, and, and just... Kind of in the way that I've been working through this. Turn over first to Psalm 40. Psalm 40. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing. David is singing a song of praise to God for his help and his deliverance. Yes, I'll probably refer to this again next week, okay? But just follow along with me, Psalm 40. My, my Bible says the heading there above Psalm 40 is my help and my deliverer to the choir master, a Psalm of David. So this is a song of worship that David wrote. He says in verse one, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and he set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. So I want you to listen to these words as David sings this song. Think about God's faithfulness to David and those Old Testament saints, but also think ahead. 
If you're today, today, if you're in Christ, you've trusted Jesus, you're walking with him. Think about your own testimony of what Christ has done for you, okay? And as you hear these words of this Old Testament psalm, if you've never trusted in Christ, I want you to think about this is the promise that God makes to us for what he seeks to do as our deliverer through this one named Jesus. So he said, he set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. Verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Now pay attention here to these next three verses. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Verse 9, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So here's David just testifying and praising God for all of his faithfulness, the way he's delivered him, the way he's filled his heart with praise and worship. And then he just gives this testimony, if you will, or this understanding that there is blessing that comes in putting your trust in God. Don't trust the proud. Don't trust the world around you. God is faithful in that. And then in verse six and seven, then we hear this, 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 I don't know if it's a, if, if David there is, if all of a sudden he's, he's talking about his understanding of the sacrificial system. And he's going back and thinking about the reality that God says, yes, I have called you and require you to make sacrifices, but I'm looking at your heart more than I'm looking at what's on the altar. So is David thinking about that? And the reason I raise that question is because this verse, these two verses, are later quoted by the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament in chapter 10 as a direct reference to Jesus. Did David know he was prophesying about Jesus here? I I do not know the answer to that. I don't know that. But he was. And so it points us ahead to Jesus. And so here, David's giving this testimony of how faithful God is and the deliverance that God offers. I don't know if David knew that he was looking forward to Jesus in that particular passage there. Here's what I do know about David. And I want you to think about this with me for just a second. David knew... The stories of Abraham in the book of Genesis. David had the book of Genesis. And he knew the stories of Abraham. Going back even further, he understood that an animal had needed to die in the Garden of Eden so that Adam and Eve could be covered. So this idea that something needed to lose its life so that others could be blessed was not new to David. But it really took clear form in David's heart and mind, I believe, when he remembered the story of Abraham and directly being told by the word of God that Abraham took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Genesis 22:13. So Abraham understood what God was asking him to do. 
and believed, it tells us later on in Hebrews, that God would raise up Isaac, even if he had to take his life. But then he saw a ram caught in the thicket, and he made the connection. Aha! That ram instead of my son. Abraham understood that, and so did David. David also understood what was going on in the Exodus. He had read the account. He had been told that account over and over. He had celebrated the Passover. And he understood that in that book of Exodus, God had spared the firstborn who were covered by the blood. And whoever those firstborn were, not covered by the blood, would perish. So David understood that God had made a provision. And even as David celebrated that Passover, first with his family and then within his own family as he was king, he takes into account this idea that God took seriously obeying him and trusting him and putting your faith in him. And if that perfect lamb died and the blood was covered over the lentil, then I'm spared. My family is spared. So David understood that. What about when David went to church? What about when David worshipped? Here's an, here's an important connection to make as you read your Bible. Exodus and Leviticus. And if you want to look at it, just, just turn over in the Old Testament and look at the end of Exodus and the first of Leviticus. So in the very last chapter, the very last sentence of Exodus... Before we go into the very first chapter and the very first sentence of Leviticus, Exodus ends this way. It ends with the glory of the Lord among his people. And it said, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, I'm not going to take the time to develop it. Just picture a, a tabernacle, a big ornate tent sitting in the middle of a humongous campground. And surrounding that tabernacle are all the tents of the Israelites in the particular order that God gave them. There in the middle of the people of God is, is this presence of God symbolized in that tabernacle. God is in the midst of his people. And so throughout all their journeys, it said, whenever the cloud was taken up and over the tabernacle, the people would set out. If the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. So God led them through the wilderness. The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire was on it by night. And in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all the days of their journey, God had promised Moses on the mountaintop. And then he fulfilled that promise saying, I will go with you. How does a holy God take up residence among the middle of a people that he would also call stiff-necked and rebellious? How does a holy God dwell in the midst of a people who are unholy? Leviticus gives us the answer. Leviticus shows us how that happens. And in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting and said, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you are... When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd and from the flock. If this offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And look at verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. 
Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Very specific instructions there that are repeated over and over and over and over and over and over in the book of Leviticus that says that when the worshiper comes into the presence of God, he does not come empty-handed. He comes with a sacrifice. He comes with an offering. And that through the act of taking his hands and laying it on the offering, he is in a sense recognizing that God has made the means by which his sin, through the laying on of that hands, can symbolically be passed to that substitute. And that substitute then, when it lays down its life and dies, or that life is taken from it rather, its blood is shed. The blood is separated from the body. And death occurs. And so what is pictured in that is the cost of sin, the seriousness of it, and the gracious offer of God to provide a means by which that worshiper will not be destroyed in his footsteps. And yet this this animal would be a substitute. David knew that. David had placed his hands on the head of that bull. Or that goat or whatever that offering might be. Various offerings are there. Many of them require that laying on of the hands. So just think about that. David understood a substitute. And Leviticus gives us this answer. And it's even more clearly seen in the commands later on in Leviticus for this day of atonement. And there, two goats are brought in worship. And the lot is cast and one of those goats is killed as the sacrifice. The other of that goat, well, just listen to what it says in Leviticus 16:22. And when he's made an end of the atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. By the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. That too is fulfilled perfectly in Christ as the writer of Hebrews tells us. And that after Jesus had offered up his sacrifice of himself. He was taken outside and buried. Outside of the camp. I can't take the time to preach back through the book of Hebrews, but man, that's here's the picture of what they see in the Old Testament fulfilled in the ministry of Christ. And Moyer says this, acting on behalf of the whole congregation, Aaron lays his hands on the head of the goat, confessing all of their transgressions, iniquities and sins, putting them on the head of the goat so that he can bear them on himself all of their iniquities, and laying on the hand that was the laying on the hand, Moyer says, was both a gesture of identifying the beast with the worshiper and imparting to that beast those sins, and thereby putting on him what lay in between God and that worshiper. You see the picture? It's what we said in Second Corinthians. But here's the problem that I'm not sure David did see. But Isaiah did. 300 years after David, Isaiah comes on the scene and says, wait a minute. If it is a person that sins, 
should it not be a person that pays? If it has been rebellion, willful rebellion, that has transgressed God, should it not be willful obedience that stands in the place? How can a dumb animal that has no will of its own, as spotless and as perfect as it may be by requirement, lay down its life willingly? So there's the, there's the rub. There's the question. Isaiah had the answer. Isaiah just towers above all the other Old Testament prophets and seeing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what no other prophet really saw to that extent, I don't think. And Jason read that for you in, in Isaiah 52 and 53. I'm not going to go back time, take, take the time to read back through that, but he was pierced for our transgressions. The chastisement of our punishment was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. So Isaiah tells us that this this suffering servant suffered for others, literally for the sins of others. Isaiah tells us that this servant that this servant who suffered suffered for the benefit of others. By his wounds, we get healed. By his obedience, we are blessed. Isaiah understood and told us that this suffering servant did so willingly, obediently. He was not passive. And that God himself acted to accomplish this. So let's just fast forward real quick to the New Testament. All right. And here we see in the very beginning of the Gospel of John, John the Baptist, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. That takes away the sins of the world. So immediately there's this connection, right? There's this connection. Jesus would do it again in John 3. Go read that. As he's speaking to that Pharisee. He takes that Pharisee straight back to the beginning of the Old Testament. And says, just as your ancestors looked up at the bronze serpent and were healed, the one who looks up to Jesus will be healed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus goes on to tell him. So John the Baptist saw this. Fast forward over to the book of Romans. Turn, in fact, to the book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'm just going to read a passage there starting in verse 6. While we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ben, thank you for reading that earlier. Now, if you go back a little bit earlier in Romans chapter 3, Paul makes another more direct connection, if you will, to this Old Testament concept that we've been seeing. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, follow along. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, Paul says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. Yes, I'll see this again next week. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus 
whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, that word there may throw some of us off. Some versions, I think the NIV, um, when I memorized it in the NIV, it, it calls him the atoning sacrifice for our sin rather than the word propitiation. But that's a big word, and it's important that we understand it. And to help you understand it, the easy thing for me to do is to go back and picture in my mind, and if you have to go back to Raiders of the Lost Ark, then read Exodus, okay? But at least in Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have this image of the ark with these two angels, these two seraphim on top, and their wings overspreading this golden box. And that word for that place in between those wings, that word in the, in the Hebrew for that place there where God said he would meet his people there in the middle of those wings on top of that ark is where we get this idea of propitiation. It's where atonement is made. It's where that priest once a year sprinkled blood. So this idea of propitiation is this idea that God's just holy wrath that must be given, that must be poured out on sin that's contrary to his character, right? I mean, sin, God cannot tolerate sin, right? We understand his holiness. And in his justice, he requires payment be made. Because the soul that sins shall die, Ezekiel tells us. And so this picture of propitiation, this idea that God has, in his grace, provided a means by which his just holy wrath can be not just done away with, but diverted, if you will, away from the one who truly deserves it. I think propitiation has been rightly called a lightning rod. Because in that, God provides for himself a substitute that absorbs that wrath. So the wrath is not just done away with. God doesn't just at the last minute say, eh, it's okay. No, that just holy wrath that is absolute deserved is poured out instead on a substitute. So it's not withdrawn, it's diverted. So that's the idea that Paul tells us in the book of Romans there in chapter 3. That God put forward Christ as a propitiation to be received by faith. And that was the demonstration of his righteousness. David didn't understand all of that because God had not revealed all that. That's the mystery of what we've seen in the gospel that Paul talks about in Ephesians. All right. So that connection point that's so vital between this Old Testament concept and the New Testament... Let's look again and just think for a minute about what David said in Psalm 40 and do it in the light of Hebrews chapter 10. So I'm going to wrap it up here, but go to Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews is basically saying throughout the book, everything we see in the Old Testament about God, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his grace, all of the sacrificial system, even the tabernacle itself, all of that points us to Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. And he says so explicitly here in chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come. So in one sense, the tabernacle, the Old Testament law, the sacrificial system, all of those things, 
while they were so important and given by God as a means by which their sins really indeed were atoned for in that time limit, in that time block, if you will, but the fullness of that atonement would come in Christ. But since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So the law and all the sacrifices and all of those things They're just a a shadow of the reality because they could not. And that word make perfect. We talked about it last week. We talked about it a lot here. That idea of being made perfect is telos, taking us to the end that we should be at, if you will. So they can't do that. Those those bulls and goats and all that blood really can't do what ultimately can only be done by this perfect sacrifice. And the proof of that, he says in verse two, is look. Otherwise, they would have not ceased. Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the bulls, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So there's that there's that crux. There's that issue. Whatever it is that's offered in case in the case of or instead of this willful, rebellious sinner must be willful, willing to be in that place. And David used these words in Psalm 40, but the Holy Spirit takes these words in Hebrews 10 and says, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Look at what it says. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. That's Jesus speaking first person. I willingly have come to do your perfect will, O God. You see, our sin is the sin first in so many ways, at least the ones we see quickly, are the sins of commission, right? We do those things we should not do. But we also have the sins of omission, right? We don't do what we should. So it's what we do that we shouldn't and what we don't do that we should. And Jesus had none of either. None. He said, I have come to do your will, O God. I'm going to do exactly what you want me to do. Both in what I will refrain from and what I will do in accordance with perfect obedience to you. It goes on in verse 8. And when he said above, you have neither desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices or offerings or burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. Look at verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And he goes on to clarify that the priest did this every day. Jesus did it once. It was just temporarily covering when the priest did it. It covers us for all eternity in Jesus, okay? There's this amazing picture of God's provision. This amazing picture that the curse that is on disobedience is removed in Christ. It's exactly what Paul said in Galatians. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things in the book of the law and do them. 
But then it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is the confession that we make as believers. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live by faith, I live in the Son. Excuse me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As a believer today, your standing before God stands on the principle of penal substitution. You stand on that or you stand on nothing. So how do we apply this? If you're an unbeliever, if you've never trusted in Christ today, or you're just not sure, let me just, let me just remind you of the seriousness of not loving God and not loving your neighbor as you should. And those, those sins of commission and omission, I mean, we're not going to... But our standing before God is the ultimate concern. The ultimate concern. And our God is holy... And he is loving, he is merciful, but he is a God of justice. And our misplaced affections and our self-focused ambitions are no little deal. They're huge. As I said in the beginning, they are eternity determining. And God in his love has made a way. And you know what that Old Testament believer had to do? He just had to take God at his word. And so do you. That God so loved you that he sent his only begotten son that if you would believe in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. That's what this cross means. That you don't have to have the burden of your guilt and the guilt of it. The burden of your sin and the guilt of it. Jesus came to take that. Trust him today. Put your faith in him. We're going to sing a song in just a minute, and I think it's maybe the second verse. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. Would you come today and put your faith in Christ? Would you? Come and talk to me. Grab any member of the church seated beside you. And if they're not able to talk to you about their relationship with Christ, then let that be, okay, member, you need to be ready to do that. But bring them to to one of us, okay? Now, for the church, what's the application here? Preach this to yourself, believer, day in and day out. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, Peter says, And then he goes on to say, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You know how often I battle not loving God the way I should? About 24 hours a day. You know how often I battle not loving my neighbor as I should, but loving myself and those things that I desire? It's a constant battle, right? Somebody ought to amen that. But here's the deal. Here's the promise that as we preach this gospel message to ourselves, it shapes our hearts. It humbles us that our sin was serious enough that we should die for it. And God's love is great enough that he gives his son in place.
And that'll kill our pride. And it'll, and it'll stoke that flame of love for him. And finally, this application, this substitution idea should be a substitution. This, this idea should shape our community. I have a little book in my library. I pulled it off the shelf this week, and I just reread it. I mean, it's short. It's a little book John Piper wrote a few years ago called 50 Reasons Christ Came to Die. I highly recommend that little book to you. It'd be a good book for you to get and read between now and Resurrection Sunday. 50 Reasons Christ Came to Die. And this idea of penal substitution and God providing his own sacrifice to stand in the place of us as sinners. Just listen to what Piper says in in one of his reasons Christ came to die. He said, no one but the Son of God can suffer for us, quote unquote, the way Christ did. He He bore our sins in a way that no one else could. He was a substitute sufferer, and we can never duplicate this. And however unique his suffering after pardoning and justifying sinners, it transforms us into people who act like Jesus. Not like him in pardoning, but like him in loving. Like him in suffering to do good for others. Like him in not returning evil for evil. Like him in lowliness and meekness. Like him in patient endurance. Like him in servanthood. Jesus suffered for us uniquely. That we might suffer with him in the cause of love. So that's the application for this for us as a church. For us to be that kind of culture, that kind of community, okay? Alex Moyer, in another little article I read, said, Imagine an Israelite husband and wife having this conversation. So just think about this conversation as I close. The husband comes home after visiting the tabernacle or the temple. The husband says, how wonderful it is to have one's sins forgiven. The wife, how do you know your sins have been forgiven? Husband, I saw the appointed animal die in my place, paying my price. Wife, but how do you know your sins are forgiven? Husband, well, because as taught... I laid my hand on its head, appointing it to be my substitute. Wife, nevertheless, how do you know your sins are forgiven? Husband, because the Lord himself says so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today, the clarity of it that says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We also thank you for the promise of Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that gift is given at such a high price, Lord. Thank you for reminding us of that today. And that gift is given to those who by faith receive it. So, Lord, I pray that if there is someone today here that's never trusted in Christ, they would reach out with the hand of faith and receive the gift of forgiveness and life that you offer in Christ. And that, Lord, we as your church would just take that gift and hold it up before you as a, as a sacrifice of praise. We would thank you for the grace that's been given to us. Lord, burn that joy of your salvation into our hearts, I pray. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.